0: Hello, Mamas, and welcome to episode 11 of Bump to Mum. I am your host, Emma, and this week I am so stoked to be bringing you a conversation with the founder of Your Monthly, Sarah. Sarah is a dietitian and a women's health expert, as well as being a mum to one, um, her little boy called Toby, who is 11 months old. So, in this conversation, we talk through everything woman's health, periods, becoming pregnant, nutrition, nutrition in all phases of pregnancy, postpartum, preconception. I met Sarah back in 2021 when I decided I needed to get my cycle sorted out so that we were in a position to start a family um, so it's so nice to talk to her kind of couple of years on we've now both got babies um, so there's been a lot happening in the last few years and obviously my cycle got back on track after working with her. I also do need to really apologize for my voice now and in the podcast recording because unfortunately I have got COVID, Um, Louis got COVID, my husband's got COVID so it's a house of bugs Um, but I was just so keen to record this conversation with Sarah that I did not put it off Um, but when I listened back to it I was like hmm should I have put it off, voice is sounding pretty croaky and nasally and my brain was definitely a little bit slower than usual. Whether you're a mother, you want to be pregnant, or you actually are falling into neither of those categories, um, I think this conversation is one that we should all listen to, because Sarah really kind of explains the whole period cycle. What is it? What happens in our bodies? Um, she debunks a lot of diet culture, you know, why, why shouldn't women fast? You know, why do we need to eat breakfast? How do we nourish our bodies enough so that we can be fertile? we talk through how women have kind of fallen out of touch of how much we should eat and what we should eat and it just can be very confusing and overwhelming um so this is not just an episode for mums or mums-to-be this is for any woman wanting to understand their cycles better sarah also shares her motherhood experience to date the highs and lows with her little man toby um that it's not been all easy, but there has been some amazing seasons and that she's just really in her stride now and loving it. I'm just so grateful we have women like Sarah doing the work she does because it really is changing people's lives. It's helping us create families, which is just incredible. So yeah, without further ado, let's get into this episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, I would so love if you could leave a review, share with your friends um, and get this one out there because it's, it's a goodie. So yeah, enjoy. Hey Sarah how are you going? Hey I'm good it's nice to talk to you again. I know it's been a little while I've had a baby you've had a baby since our last time we spoke which is kind of crazy. Busy
1: busy breeding but we're yeah
0: (laughs) yeah and you're back at work
1: as well which is cool so how old's your little one now? Toby is exactly today, the day that we're recording, he's 11 months old, Um, I know, he's almost one!
0: Yeah, that's such a big, like, that's such a big thing, I feel like even, you know, Louis seven months, and we're just creeping closer, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, where's
1: that year gone, you know? It's so cliche, hey? Like, in the look of it, you can't ever, ever imagine them getting older, but yeah, we're planning a first birthday party already, which is crazy! Oh, so exciting! What what sort of theme are
0: you thinking?
1: Very low key. I'm just mm-hmm. like all about tasty food. So we're getting like, yeah. This kid loves sushi, so there's going to be sushi involved oh. well, because it's like his favorite. And it's our favorite thing to do is go out for sushi. Um. Oh, that's yeah. I, I know. My sister-in-law's making a cake, and we've got lots of friends with little people, so there'll be lots of kids, lots of noise, lots of food. that will be cool. Oh,
0: that sounds absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Um, well, I would actually love, we've jumped into it, but I would love you to tell everyone that's listening a bit about yourself um, and your business, Your Monthly, which is actually how we met. Yes.
1: Um, so I am a dietitian and a nutrition consultant, and I live in Christchurch uh, with my husband, my dog, and my little guy, Toby. And I work online under, I guess, like the brand or the space, Your Monthly which is an online consulting form um, where I basically started it to take the conversations I was having uh, in my clinic in Christchurch to a wider audience. So I also work at a women's health clinic called Oxford Women's Health in Christchurch, which uh, specialises in uh, like gynecology and obstetrics. And, Mm. yeah, your monthly is about educating women as well. So um, I offer consultation, but also, yeah, do things like this, speaking events. Um, trying to preach all about women's health and all the different avenues that I can.
0: Amazing. And because we met when I I think I, I approached you, um, I was having problems with my cycle. It was irregular. This was kind of around the time that Luke and I were wanting to start a family and I was like, I need to get this sorted. So is that kind of your the bulk of the sort of work that you do with your monthly is around women's cycles and hormones or
1: I mean, yeah. Yeah,
0: what, what sort of other things do you cover?
1: Yeah, so the women who come to work with me will often have what I would call like a period problem. So that might be, they might not have a cycle, something we call amenorrhea. They might have a really irregular cycle and maybe that's causing problems with conceiving or they're just wanting to learn more about having a more regular cycle. Um, I also work with women who have uh, a diagnosis of conditions like endometriosis or adenomyosis or PCOS, which I know is lots of jargon, but um, there's lots of different uh, women's health conditions that have a lot of evidence for the nutritional management of them. So I help women Mm. to learn more about managing those conditions alongside working with their doctor um, and, yeah, empower them to take control of their cycle, really. Um, I also work a lot with female athletes, um, helping Mm. them to regain their periods or maintain their periods while they're at a performing level. Um, And I feel like in recent years, I've been doing this for almost nine years, but in recent years, working a lot with women wanting to come off birth control, not Mm. necessarily to conceive, but just wanting to experience a healthy ovulation cycle and, yeah,
0: learn about how to do that. And is this like a space of work that you always wanted to get into or was there something that kind of inspired you or motivated you to really go down
1: this pathway? Not really. I get asked this question every now and again, and I wish I had this really like romantic story about how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually started off my career working with children, so I used to work uh, oh. in a paediatric role at Christchurch Hospital, um, and then I actually went to Oxford Women's Health, the clinic I work at now. I went as a patient, and this is not, oh. no word of a lie. I wrote on the intake form that my occupation was dietitian, and my doctor was like, we'd love someone like you to work here. Why don't you come and work here? and I I did it I left my job at the hospital I (laughs) know kind of weird but I started to work um at this gynae clinic and the more that I learned about women's health the more it excited me the more results I saw with clients the more it excited me and I feel like periods and you know having pregnancy and breastfeeding and postpartum and all those different things are just such a special part of somebody's life to be a part of and it's a little bit toxic but it doesn't feel like work I just genuinely like feel like I remember when your um your podcast that came out like feeling proud that you were once my client and now that you're Uh a mom like it's just it's so cool being a part of people's stories you know on their health journey is very cool
0: yeah I still remember as well when I got my period back like messaging you being like oh my like it was such a a big thing and then I think I even messaged you as well once I was pregnant which happened a lot faster than I expected having gone through what through what I had and it was just like yeah like I mean I'm not in that position that you're in but I can imagine it's pretty special when you're literally helping people create their families and you know like that's
1: super special yeah I know about pregnancies like before grandparents and like, yeah <laughs> you know you like, would. People share with me really early and I I audibly squeal like when I get to open those emails it's just oh. oh it's just awesome very very cool
0: oh that is just yeah that is so cool so um you mentioned the name of it before and I'm probably gonna say it wrong but it is what mm-hmm. I discovered I had um after we kind of had our initial con- consultation and, and did those blood tests but it's and how do you say it? The amenorrhea I can't say it properly. <laughs>
1: I can say it, but I cannot spell it. So I'm with you. Yeah. On so, <laughs> it's called hypothalamic amenorrhea.
0: And could you explain, because you're obviously gonna explain it a lot better than I am <laughs> of what that actually is.
1: I sure we can. So if you break down like what does the word hypothalamic amenorrhea mean? So hypothalamus is the part of our brain that controls what we call our endocrine or our hormone-making glands in our body. Um, And so your hypothalamus or your brain essentially has to tell your ovaries to do their job every month and you have to ovulate to get a healthy period. And so hypothalamic amenorrhea is an issue where women aren't ovulating and therefore aren't getting a period. And it's usually caused by a combination of undereating and over-exercising. Um, I see it a lot in, I guess, like the busy, high-achieving woman. And it's definitely not from an in- intentional restriction, if you like, mm-hmm. more just like a, a consequence of being a modern female. Um, I see it in clients who maybe had like eating disorders in their teenage years and they never quite recovered to a healthy body weight. Um, and I see it a lot in my athlete population where they're just exercising so much that they're unable to meet the energy demands through nutrition, so that's what that diagnosis is.
0: Yeah, and so I remember, so I met with you because I had a very irregular cycle, and I just thought, mm-hmm. oh, it's a bit irregular. You know, no, no, no cause for concern, but may as well check in and and see what's happening, and also just get a bit more of a healthy eating routine going. Wanting to become pregnant, and then we did those blood tests to actually check if I was ovulating and it Mm -hmm. showed that I wasn't. And that was Mm -hmm. like such a shock to me that I actually, you know, I was at a point in my life where I wanted to have a baby now. And that wasn't something that at that time I was going to be able to do. And it was such a scary thing. I think when you've kind of not really had to think about it up until the point where you obviously decide that you want Mm -hmm. to have a baby. Um, So it is, it is like one of those things as well. you just, I just didn't know about it. Um, and so then we obviously put in a bit of a plan in terms of, um, and what I really loved about it was like, you it wasn't like big changes that we had to make to my, um, to what I was doing every day, but it was things like you say, like it's the busy, the busy woman lifestyle. Like I just wasn't having breakfast and I would wake up and it would be, you know, quite a few hours before I ate my first meal. And it was like, Eat something in the first hour, even if it's a banana yes. or something. Um, yes. It was just like the the smallest change, but I feel like made such an impact. You know, just my body functioning well yeah. and knowing yeah. that there was food around. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so I would love you to maybe talk through a little bit around um, if someone has got maybe an irregular cycle. What what the sort of paths for recovery are there, and, and what sort of things that you recommend?
1: Yeah, it's it's such a good point, isn't it? And I think that's the beauty of working with someone on an individual level. It's about Mm. looking, you know, about what patterns are happening at the moment and trying to make changes that can fit in with somebody's busy life. Um, But I like what you said just before, Emma, about kind of reassuring your body that there's access to food. And I'll Mm. often talk through that example with clients that our hypothalamus, which is controlling ovulation, it doesn't have any, how do I word this, like cognition, or it doesn't have any... Um, awareness it's working on feedback loops and a really easy way for me to describe this is if I think about our um, adrenal glands which make stress hormones your hypothalamus also talks to that part of your body and if me and you were having like a scary movie night together with them, when the babies were asleep and we we're watching paranormal activity and we got a fright because whatever comes on the screen and we start to make that hormone adrenaline you know you and I know that there's no hopefully ghost in the room, but our hypothalamus is giving us that message that we're in danger and you need adrenaline to run away from that danger. So it's working Mm. on those kind of feedback loops. And so when you think about that in the context of nutrition and having a regular cycle, if a woman is under eating, if she's overexercising, if she's chronically stressed from, you know, work, finances, social responsibilities, whatever it might be, That communicates to your hypothalamus that you don't have resource that will help you to sustain a healthy pregnancy and nourish an infant once the earth side. So, you know, for example, it can sound really naff, the idea of just having breakfast to have a regular period. But if you're having, you know, a really long fasting uh, window, so you've had dinner the night before, you know, eating until midday the next day. That's enough to tell your brain over time that Emma doesn't have access to regular resource of food, mm-hmm. so I'm going to suppress ovulation because if she was to fall pregnant, the likelihood of her being able to sustain that pregnancy might be smaller. And pregnancy is a very demanding thing for a human body to do. Um, yeah. In the context of stress, you know your hypothalamus tries to keep you safe, and so you know that perceived threat versus actual threat. Um, if you are chronically stressed or you're stressed over a really long period of time, your brain would receive that information as you're living in some sort of tribal space where there's lots of conflict. You know, you're, you're physically not safe, even though you and I know that we're not in danger. Your brain's mm. receiving that information as something might be wrong and getting pregnant and having an infant in that environment isn't going to be a viable outcome. So I'm not going to let that happen. So that's kind of a little bit about how the hypothalamus plays into ovulation. And so mm. some of the the simple things I do with clients is really starting with, are you eating enough? And a lot of women have no context or idea about how much is enough in terms of nutrition. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the rise of this mentality that we should be eating less than men, um, the normalization of, you know, lots of diet crazes like fasting, low carb, yeah. plant based for yeah. weight loss, all that kind of stuff, food gets noisy for women and they've got no idea mm-hmm. how to treat themselves anymore. So, you know, we look at their diet and um, you know, a simple question I'll often ask clients is if you were to give somebody you really, really love and respect what you eat in a day and expect them to do what you do in a day, do you think that's enough food? Mm. most women are able to answer that as no actually i think they'd feel pretty ripped off with the amount of i think i would know you know do this with my diet and do this with my diet so that can kind of be an initial really good thing to kind of check in with yourself Mm. um we always start with are you eating enough the second thing i always talk about with clients is you need to be including carbohydrate to ovulate and i can kind of get really sciencey on this or keep it really light but Basically, we make a hormone called luteinizing hormone, which we would have checked with your blood work, Emma, and mm. that hormone is what tells your ovaries to do the job of ovulation. And we know from research that it's not just adequate calorie intake that plays into that hormone being produced, but it's also about adequate carbohydrate intake. So mm. really simply making sure women are having a carb source at lunch, dinner, and if you're exercising, have carb-containing snacks as well. Mm. Um so would be the first, I guess, big thing around the nutrition. The other thing that I often talk about with my clients with amenorrhea or those irregular cycles because of the hypothalamus is simple things like avoiding training fasted. So mm-hmm. having something little to eat before you exercise, um, like literally like a banana or a couple of bliss bowls before you go on a morning walk is a really big one um, and making sure that you're not over exercising and um for a lot of women if we think about like that busy modern woman and i think you'll relate to this you know we use exercise as like a mental health tool Mm. to wind down or to kind of feel good in our bodies and um all those types of things and so it's not about getting rid of exercise but just i guess appreciating you know if you have a really busy work day and then you do a type of activity where you're creating a lot of stress hormones like high intensity or long distance or fast tempo running you know you're kind of finishing your stressful day with a little bit more stress for your body yeah. and so thinking about you know how can you swap some of those intense sessions for the swimming the walking and listening to a podcast or <laughs> um, pilates and yoga that type of thing it's so
0: so interesting and I think the biggest aha moment I had when we were you know working through you know, my, what I was going to do to help get my cycle back was like I can't outsmart my body. my body is so much smarter and it's you know it doesn't I, I don't know if i'm I'm describing that properly, but it was just this moment where I was like, I can't outsmart my body. it knows mm-hmm. what it needs. and mm-hmm. it was kind of like it put me in my place a little bit and it was just like <laughs> you can't control everything and yeah. you need to actually do do these things so that your body knows it's safe and it's safe to have a baby and it's going to be nourished and the, you know, it can get pregnant. And it was just that sort of realization of just like how amazing our bodies are, um, that, you know, if you're, if there's a, if it thinks there's a shortage of food, you're not going to get pregnant. And Mm -hmm. like, I think as well, we also talked about, and I would love you to maybe just explain this because I think it's something, you know, we have our, you know, you get your period when you're whatever age and then you have it for so many years. But you never, like, maybe completely understand how that works. And I think you said it to me as well. It was like your period's are not guaranteed every single month. Like you're not gar- guaranteed to ovulate no. every month. So could you maybe break down, like, what happens each month and what's happening yeah. in our bodies? And then that will kind of, I guess, tie into, like, how we can maybe best... Ensure that we can ovulate every month.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, isn't it? How many of us have ovaries, and how many of us can explain how they work? Oh. Or what drop I
0: don't think I really <laughs> paid much attention until it was like, oh, I want to
1: actually have a baby now. How yeah. does this all work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, as I said before, um, our hypothalamus, or a part of our brain, is the initial place where our cycle actually begins. Um, and so, what should happen every month is your hypothalamus makes what talks to another part of your brain, which is called the pituitary gland, and it makes two hormones, which I can name. Those are luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. Um, those two hormones travel through your bloodstream, and they tell your ovaries that it's time to start their engines. And then your ovaries themselves will start to make the hormone estrogen, or it's called estradiol if you've got a blood test looking at estrogen before. And what estrogen is doing in that first half of your cycle is two very important jobs for a healthy period. So the first thing it's doing is it's developing what we call your endometrium, which is your uterine lining. So it's getting it all thick and vascular and nutrient dense, ready to hold a pregnancy if that was to occur. And obviously, this is what will fall away eventually as your period. So having really light periods or... um, really heavy periods can be an estrogen issue as well. Um, The other really important job that estrogen is doing is it's picking an ovarian follicle, um, which contains an egg, um, who is going to be the dominant follicle that month. And it's basically acting like a fertilizer and helping that follicle to grow to a mature size. So if you look at an ovary on an ultrasound, I think most of us would imagine like a smooth chicken egg. <laughs> but it kind of <laughs> looks like a bunch of grapes. So you've got all oh. these ovarian yeah. So you've got all these ovarian follicles with like, I guess, seeds insides, which are your eggs. Um, and there's usually always one dominant follicle. Who's the lucky girl that's going to get to ovulate that month. And then there's all these smaller ones behind her that are waiting their turn in line. So estrogen picks the dominant follicle, helps her to grow big enough to actually ovulate. Um, and obviously some people ovulate twice in one cycle which is how you get twins um and so once that ovarian follicle gets big enough it'll rupture and some women experience ovulation pain so they actually feel that moment in time although that's pretty wow yeah um and then once you ovulate i think this is the most interesting part of the cycle literally overnight you form a gland so you make a hormone making gland overnight in the crater of the ovulation site so if you imagine that grape rupturing all 4 four isn't it you get a <laughs> gland forming overnight and that gland is what makes the hormone progesterone which is your second oh dominant female sex hormone so estrogen then takes a dive and progesterone's um, time to shine is in the second half of your cycle and the reason we talk about ovulation being an important part of having a period is progesterone is made from that gland for a period of two weeks mm-hmm. and i want your listeners to imagine progesterone's kind of like the glue that's holding your uterine lining to the side yeah. Okay. So if you imagine that progesterone's making everything stick to the side, it's giving you, you know, that fertile window to get pregnant. If you fall pregnant, then eventually your placenta makes progesterone. And obviously you and I know you don't get a period for nine months (laughs) and progesterone is what maintains your pregnancy. Um, If you don't fall pregnant, eventually the gland that's making progesterone runs out of juice and you'll get a big dive in progesterone as that gland dies away and therefore that glue's gone. And then you start to shred your uterine lining and that's how you get a period so mm. if you have a healthy cycle almost exactly to the day you should get a period two weeks after ovulation and that is why ovulation times your cycle it's to do with how long that gland can produce progesterone for and progesterone maintaining your uterine lining and preventing you from getting a bleed
0: mm. oh my goodness Does that make it's sense? Incredible, isn't it? yes and i love all your visuals because i think otherwise i would be like what but like yeah. it's it, Yeah, no, that makes complete. So, if you are then having longer and irregular cycles, Mm -hmm. or long cycles but they're regular, what would that potentially mean? And I know that's you know, there's you need to take into more than that. But what would would that mean? Could you still be
1: ovulating or not likely? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, maybe it's worthwhile talking through like what's considered normal. So like. In terms of like, how often should we should we be getting a cycle? Um, we know that anywhere between twenty one to thirty five days is normal. So that's counting from mm. your day one to your next day one to the first day of your period to the next first day of your period. Um, but I would I would consider it abnormal if a woman had a twenty one day cycle and then like the next month had a thirty five day and then a twenty two mm. and then a thirty four day. So you want it like a, a similar um, I guess calendar rotation um yeah. if somebody has a long cycle so more than 35 days it can mean that they did ovulate but it was just a little bit later in their cycle so okay. when your brain makes londonizing hormone which remembers that trigger shot to get you ovulating sometimes it can begin to make that hormone and then it will get it sounds silly but it gets a little bit of a fright so it'll kind of sense something's wrong and it'll stop making that hormone and it might just say i'll try a little bit later in the cycle So Mm. often if a client has a regular cycle and then they have this one-off 40-day cycle and we kind of talk about what happened in that month and they might say, I I had a bereavement that week or "Um, I had a peak training week in my marathon training program and I probably didn't eat enough, it can be that her brain was going to ovulate, got spooked, tried again later and so her period was a little bit later than normal. Um, Sometimes having a really long cycle, even though you do have a period, it may still be that you're not ovulating at all. So Mm. you can make enough estrogen to have that uterine lining develop, but not enough estrogen to ovulate. And I think this is interesting, but humans are one of the only mammal species that can't reabsorb our uterine lining. It's too nutrient rich. And so it does eventually have to fall away as a bleed. Um, Mm. But if that bleed is um, quite dark in color, quite light, if it happened, you know, um, You get a period every 60 days. It's likely that you didn't ovulate across that 60-day period. It's just kind of old endometrium falling away.
0: Mm. And that's what was happening to me. So I was still having what I thought was a, you know, a period. So I assumed everything Mm. was fine. But when we did those blood tests, it was actually, okay, you're not actually ovulating. And that's, that's probably what was happening there. There was enough estrogen, you know, there was some estrogen, but not enough. Um, for ovulation to happen and so it can be a little bit confusing because you're like well I've still got my period and it's irregular but I just assumed everything was hunky-dory and doing it you know doing what it should but um Mm. I guess for me the sign that something maybe was not right was years of having a very regular period to then you know sometimes that you know not not having a period for like 40 days or something like that and it became very irregular and I was like hmm don't think that's quite right yeah. and um, have, like, a healthy cycle. And once I got to that point, I really did feel that, like, start of the cycle, felt amazing, social, could you know, unstoppable, wanted to be <laughs> making plans, conquering the world. Um, I could tell when I was ovulating, like, I was like, oh, I'm looking good this month. Like, look at me go. And then you yeah. felt the drop when it was – the the progesterone takes over and I felt a little flat and I didn't really want to do as much and it was crazy like actually being able to feel that and like I still don't have my period back because I'm breastfeeding and I miss that I miss the
1: the peak in the trough like knowing that um woman wanting to come off hormonal birth control we know so much more now about how female mm -hmm. sex hormones play into our physical and our emotional and our mental well-being that although there's parts of our cycle for sure that I'm sure we would easily wish away, you know, when we're irritable and bloated and grumpy Mm -hmm. and our skin's breaking out. But for a lot of the cycle, estrogen, you know, increases our libido. It has an important role in vaginal lubrication. It prevents thrush. Mm -hmm. It does, like, all these amazing things for our bones and our mental health. And when you've had years without a period or if you've been on hormonal birth control and you haven't had a true period, I think once you're kind of learning about this stuff and we call it championing your cycle, so kind of learning Mm. about the different phases of your cycle, it can be pretty cool. And I I was the same as you, Emma, when I didn't have my period back. When I was breastfeeding my little guy, you definitely noticed the flat line, I think, of Mm. not having those hormones behind you. There's lots of other lovely (laughs) hormones when you have a baby, but um, there's something to look forward to about getting your period back.
0: I would love you to maybe break down for us a little bit what are some things we should be doing um, before and during um, trying to conceive. So from a you know, new nutrition and a hormone perspective, is there anything we should be eating, taking that will kind of set our bodies up for success?
1: Definitely. So I think the first thing is to get to know your cycle. And I know that's not about food, but I mean, you're a really classic example of this, Emma, in that mm. you were obviously aware of your cycle and you knew that it had become irregular. And because mm. you knew that, you could seek support, get help, and turn things around quite quickly. Mm. Um, and I think it's awesome to do that when you're in the space of wanting a baby. But even before then, if you have a regular period, an irregular period, sorry, I think doing the work kind of sooner rather than later puts you in a position that you can then be putting your best foot forward to conceive when the time comes. Yeah. Um I guess the second thing there is if you have a regular cycle, get to know your fertile window. So Mm. knowing about actually when you need to try to try and conceive, I can't tell you how many clients – just have no idea about when to actually try to make a baby across their cycle. Yeah. Um, so you can buy like at-home ovulation test kits, which measure luteinizing hormone in your urine. You can do fertile mucus tracking, which is based on when you make lots of estrogen. Um, your vaginal mucus will become more equi in consistency. Or if you're working with a really informed GP or a gynecologist, you can do timed blood tests across your cycle to work out when you're starting to make progesterone and get to know when you are oh ovulating. My. Um, in terms of like nutrition, kind of going back to thinking about this idea of being fertile, what does that mean? It's really mm-hmm. simple that we need to be eating enough. Um, and so the research tells us at least 2,000 calories a day if we're wanting to fall pregnant. And I try and make sure that there's lots of protein within that as well for my clients too. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously carbohydrate as well. So a really cool, easy to remember tool that I talk about with clients is try and use the rule of three when you're building a meal which is make a third of your meal protein, a third of your meal carbohydrate source, and then a third your color source. So your fruit or your vegetables.
0: Mm. A lot of the women that
1: I work with are what I would call really health conscious and they love veggies and they love, you know, all those really high fiber, low calorie foods, which is great. Don't get me wrong. Vegetables are good for you, but they're not more important than other things on your plate. And so it can be a really useful tool to make sure that every food group is represented Um, I would also recommend that women who are wanting to conceive start appropriate supplementation. So uh, in New Zealand, the Ministry of Health recommends that we take folic acid for at least three months prior to conception and then throughout the first trimester of your pregnancy Um, and uh, your GP or your midwife or your obstetrician can prescribe folic acid or you can buy uh, prenatal vitamins—they're um, not all made the same, but you can buy prenatals that contain the right amount of folic acid. The reason we recommend that is folic acid is a um, a version of the B vitamin folate, and it's been shown to be really important for babies' central nervous system development, so brain and spine. Um, mm. And taking folic acid reduces your risk of spina bifida. But I'm sure lots of people know that already um i also routinely recommend that if you're working with a gp and getting some bloods done before conceiving to check your iron and to mm. check your vitamin d so there's some interesting research around adequate vitamin d levels have been shown to reduce the time to conception in couples oh who are wow. naturally yeah your, um, your ovaries actually have vitamin D receptors, but we're not really sure why and, and what they do, but there appears to be a role between vitamin D and fertility. Um, and so to be classed as deficient in New Zealand, you'd have a level less than 50, but for fertility, we want it to be more than 70, so somewhere between 70 to 100. Um, so I'd be getting that checked. And iron deficiency is very common in females in New Zealand as well, and iron obviously has a really big role in um energy and cell healing and creation of cells and so taking an iron supplement if you need to as well is really important too so Mm. in terms of nutrition i know it sounds basic but eat enough like do your kind of homework on your supplements and get them started um so i'm trying to think of the other questions i commonly get asked from clients coffee is a big one that people ask me about yeah coffee when i'm trying to get pregnant um, you absolutely can, which I think people always, like, breathe when I say that. You can have coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I guess the big thing there is coffee's not food. And I see lots of women having a flat white for breakfast or a long black for morning tea. And I'm like, you can have your coffee, but you need to eat as well. Make sure you're eating enough. Caffeines and appetite suppressants. So often women will, like, have that flat white at 10 a.m and then kind of power through the rest of the day and have lunch at two o'clock yeah so each at the same time um and in terms of research around conception if you stick to no more than like two brought coffees a day um it's absolutely fine no risk at all
0: yeah i think that that was one thing i was terrified as well because i'm Mm -hmm. you know i love coffee and i i love the kick from it but i also just love like the routine of
1: you know it's something that
0: Yeah, it's a ritual for me. And I was like, I don't want to give that up. But also, like, I just, while once we decided to try, I would have my, like, you know, nice, bought, strong coffee in the morning. And then I'd just have a decaf if I felt that need for that taste. And I know there's still a little bit of caffeine, but sometimes it is just, like, something warm and and that taste. But I didn't necessarily always want the caffeine. And decaf was pretty good. Like, I had no... Yeah, okay, it's not quite the same, but it was. It's pretty close
1: There's yeah. so many different brands now doing really good decaf versions.
0: Exactly. So I, I i definitely, you know, I drank coffee and I'm drinking coffee. I've drunk it throughout my pregnancy and breastfeeding. I still, you know, enjoy it. And I think that's important to know as well. It's like you don't have to just cut all these things out willy-nilly like you can have most things within reason so um yeah I think that's really and I think as well just on the point about eat enough there's so and you mentioned it before there's so much noise on like social media with people doing like what I eat in a day and it's you know it just kind of distorts what is normal and like what you should eat for your body Mm -hmm. and then makes you think like well is that all they eat but I eat this much and it's just Mm -hmm. it's so it can be really confusing and I actually when I was work when we were working together, I went through my Instagram and I just did a big cleanse of any of that sort of stuff that was going to kind of change or affect what I needed to do for my body because that wasn't relevant to me. And it's even like conversations in the office place I found really challenging yeah. when everyone's talking about what diet they're doing or they're not eating they're fasting, they're only eating at lunch and dinner, and I was sitting there literally having to eat so much more than what I had been to kind of get myself back to a point of health. And it can be really, really hard. Is there any advice you'd give to, you know, women
1: that are maybe struggling with that a little bit? It is so hard, and I think for a lot of women, you know, whether or not we can kind of lean into it and admit it because the connection between You know, like, if I eat more, am I going to gain weight? And if I gain Mm. weight, is it going to distress my body image? And that is such a normal experience when you're kind of confronting Mm. having not eaten enough. I guess, like, one of the more valuable conversations I probably have with clients is this idea that we're not robots and we all need different fuel amounts. We need different amounts across the days and the weeks. And we need to get out of this idea of prescribing food to ourselves. Mm. You know, like, we pack our lunch for work and we pack the same fucking amount of food that we've had (laughs) You know, yeah. every single day but like what if we're hungrier on some days versus others and yeah you know, I think trusting our appetite is really important and I'll often talk with clients about how hunger is an internal cue it is a sign it's your body saying hey Sarah Emma whoever I need this from you this is what I need if you do that I'll be happy please and thank you mm. and I know this is going to sound a little bit crass but I often compare it to the sensation of needing to wee so when you have a full bladder you're Bladder tells your brain, like, hey Sarah, you need to go to the toilet. And we don't sit mm. here and say, well, like, well, Emma hasn't used the toilet today. <laughs> or you know, Emma's only <laughs> like gone wee twice and I've gone wheez four times. You know, we don't wee until halfway and then hold it and say, Well, that's enough. I'm not gonna have any more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because then we're just gonna have to wee again in half an hour and keep going back to the toilet. So I know that's a really silly example, but kind of comparing it to hunger we need to trust it again we we don't argue with our brain when it comes to our bladder we say okay you know we don't even think about it brain's asking me to do something I'm going to go and do it, and I'm going to feel better and so can I get to know what hunger feels like in my body if I honored that hunger how much would I actually eat same with fullness and I need to be reassured that the amount that I eat is likely to be different to what somebody else needs it's likely to be different from day to day given where I am in my cycle the exercise I'm doing what else I'm asking of my brain but sometimes if you just lean on that understanding of trust with your body it can be really helpful
0: I would love you to talk through now also say you, you've kind of you're pregnant super exciting what sort of nutrition do you recommend for pregnancy and then on to postpartum
1: Huge question. <laughs> a really big I question. So I knew I thought <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might ask me this. And I tried to think about what would be really useful for listeners to hear. And so I guess starting with pregnancy, I think the first thing I really want people to know is I see a lot of women who come to meet with me, they're eight weeks pregnant, super nauseous, mm. you know, all they can tolerate is bland carbohydrate, non-offensive toast crackers, etc. And they've put all this pressure on themselves to eat this like beautiful nutrient dense diet, and they're feeling <laughs> like they're doing harm to baby. And so, I, I just the first thing I want to say is that twelve weeks is about survival. And nothing you do nutrition-wise is going to make any difference to that delicious little poppy seed-sized baby. If you're taking your formic acid, um, that's all that we need you to do. You just kind of do what you need to do, stay hydrated. Um, In terms of that morning sickness, you know, eating small amounts often is really important. Mm. We don't actually know why morning sickness happens. We think it's an issue with carbohydrate metabolism, so Mm. having a big fluctuation in blood sugar levels. And so women will often find, like, you know, stacking on ginger nuts before you even get out of bed or having crackers every two hours or whatever can get you through. But that would be the first thing I just really want women to know is we can look after nutrition the other two trimesters, the first trimester you just survive, and (laughs) it's just really important. Um, In the other two trimesters – there's a lot of different nutrition advice based on, I guess, the symptoms you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So I work a lot with clients who experience iron deficiency as they move into their third trimester. And it happens to about 30% of clients who are pregnant will get iron deficiency, Um, And that's because baby takes from our own iron stores, those little rat bags in the third trimester. (laughs) So they're laying down their own iron stores ready for delivery. So they're literally taking from the bank of mum. And so if you go into pregnancy with low iron stores or, you know, you're unable to meet your iron requirements through food. So if you're plant-based or you're not into red meat, um, which red meat's our most abundant iron source in our diet, um, you might need a little bit of extra help to get through your pregnancy without getting iron deficiency. So things like iron supplementation is important if you're deficient. But in order to prevent deficiency in pregnancy, trying to focus on lots of iron-rich foods is really important.
0: Mm. So
1: red meat if you can eat it and if you're happy to eat it. Otherwise, um, plant-based sources like lentils, chickpeas, whole grains like oats, um there's iron and things like wheat books, which is fortified with iron marmite has iron dried fruit fruits like apricots and figs have iron too so i think really yeah. iron rich foods is important um and most women who've experienced iron deficiency will know it makes us feel really tired but also iron deficiency in pregnancy is being linked to an increase of postpartum hemorrhages during delivery um oh, so we want your iron stores to be nice but your midwife will look after that for you and monitor them as well um in terms of other nutrients i focus on with clients i'm really big on talking about omega-3 with my clients who are pregnant um, because omega-3 is a fatty acid um which is involved in brain development as well for baby um and so think about things like avocado your oily fish nuts and seeds and olive oil would be some really key things to think about um as women get more and more pregnant I don't know if you experienced this Emma but I found it really hard to eat three decent sized meals as I got more and more pregnant because baby was taking yeah. up too much tummy room um and so trying to split your nutrition over maybe like five or six smaller meals a day can often be quite useful oh, I um, so I remember
0: them. that I remember like and it was frustrating because you'd have this meal in front of you and I'd actually be hungry to eat Darby, all of it yeah. but if physically couldn't fit it in because it was there was just no space and it was so frustrating
1: yeah and so like you're trying to get in like i guess just like have permission right to eat more regularly Mm -hmm. and try and make your meals really nutrient dense if you can so like i loved adding like nut butters nuts and seeds dressing things with olive oil like kind of stopping and thinking how can i add more nutrition here Mm -hmm. um as you go along can be really important as well um, what else can I kind of talk about that would be helpful there? Um, your listeners probably know about the Ministry of Health supplementation recommendations, which is folic acid the first 12 weeks and then iodine throughout your pregnancy and through breastfeeding if you're yeah. choosing to feed baby um, that way as well. But really what I would talk about with clients is, um, you know, there's I guess this old narrative around eating for two, which I think we're getting away from, but what mm-hmm. I have to talk about with clients. It's kind of an opportunity after the survival weeks, it's an opportunity to eat twice as well, so twice as nutrient-dense. Um, yeah, that would be my recommendation around an attitude to food anyway. And then yeah. um, I guess, like, moving into that postpartum period, what I probably should say is both pregnancy and postpartum in terms of nutrition are really poorly researched, and that's probably because mm. it's not that ethical to research pregnant people. <laughs> right. Um And so, like, of all the, I guess, life cycle stages um, that we can look at with nutrition, it's only maybe in recent years from observational studies, so looking at populations over time, that we've been able to pull out key nutrition recommendations for pregnancy and breastfeeding. Um, In that postpartum period, some of the big things I talk about with clients is if I start with recovery, if I kind of do the Mm. chronological order of what happens once you have a baby, (laughs) um, (laughs) recovery would be the first thing I would talk about with clients and some of the things women might like to think about is if you've suffered from a vaginal tear um so we obviously don't want you to strain when you're opening your bowels because we want that tear to heal and we want to give your pelvic floor a break because she's worked very hard and so making sure your diet's really high in fiber postpartum is important because fiber makes your bowel motions soft and easy to pass um and so thinking about like I loved like lactation cookies because they're filled mm. with oats, which are really high in fiber. I did like sultanas and chocolate, so the sultanas were more fiber there as well. um things like bliss balls. I loved snacking on dried fruit. I did like kiwi crush, which is a fiber supplement drink you can buy in the freezer section of the supermarket. Um, love Kevin Crush. That was a saviour for me as well. <laughs> it's like if you know, you know. It's like you should yeah. be given a look back when you go home. But yeah, Kevin yeah, Crush literally. is really useful. Um, or like if people are offering to bring meals, um, like ideally putting it in an order for like if there's like I don't know how many lasagnas I ate in those first six weeks. <laughs> but trying to do like, you know, mince and lentils mixed together because your plant based sources of protein, like your lentils and chickpeas are really high in fibre. So Think lots of fibre to help your pelvic floor. Um, The second thing is iron again. So Mm. in New Zealand, most women will have their iron and their red blood cell count checked um, before you leave your birthing centre or your hospital, wherever you've birthed um because often there's blood loss with delivery and lots of women suffer from iron deficiency on the back of birth um and so if you do have a deficiency you'll be given a supplement which can cause constipation which is even more reason for the fiber but i'd also be focusing on those iron rich proteins as well so um you know your beautiful slow cooked meats, things like chicken eggs were like a savior for me in that postpartum period super easy Mm. lunch option omelets for dinner which you can make one-handed um, is really important yeah. as well and um, in terms of nutrition for breastfeeding uh, so a lot of women will probably know the calorie demand of breastfeeding is higher than pregnancy which is really really interesting mm. so it's estimated that we need an additional 500 calories a day per infant we're feeding in those first six months of breastfeeding And so you know if you've got twins or triplets that's up to 1500 extra calories a day which is crazy yeah um and so i think it's really important like i see a lot of women who are really excited to kind of begin their postpartum weight loss journey after delivery and feel frustrated with how hungry they feel while they're breastfeeding but it's just really important that women understand again if we theme today is trust your body isn't it, Emma? it definitely <laughs> cannot, is. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> trust your body it is hungry because you're making milk to feed your baby and that 500 calories a day i try and get clients to think about like yes eat yummy food but try and think about getting in some nutrition at the same time just because of how much is going on for you recovery wise so like you know rather than lollies as a snack dried fruit would be a better option or instead of just chocolate like can you use the chocolate and lactation cookies instead of just crackers can it be crackers and cheese so you've got some calcium and protein that kind of thing um is a really important thing to focus on and like i mean most women are like thirsty as heck when they're breastfeeding so i don't even really need to say this but lots and lots of fluids really important um and then other key nutrients i often talk about with women there's a lot of research around vitamin d and um postpartum depression which is quite interesting so, um taking vitamin D as a supplement, getting time outside every day. I take my lunch outside with Toby, like strapped to me, in those early days, just to get some kind of fresh air. And so, even before yeah. I was able to walk around the block, but vitamin D is really, really important as well.
0: I think it's so interesting with the um, like how much extra calories is required while you're breastfeeding, and that. And, and I always said, I was like, oh, I don't know how, like, you don't have time to eat when you're a mum. And I so see it now. So some days it's like it is literally, like, you get to, like, mid-morning and you're like, cool, I've fed my baby how many times and I'm yet to yeah. kind of get food into myself. And it's it is tricky. Did you have, like, did you experience that and did you have any, like, kind of tips to sneak in the calories during the day? Like, I know that that's something I've really – well, probably not so much now, but earlier on I really struggled with actually getting the time to make food or, like, be able to put 100%. the baby down so you can get yourself food.
1: A hundred percent. And I laugh. I often think about Sarah, the dietitian, before she had Toby and, like, working yeah. with mums and the stuff that used to come out of my mouth. They're probably just like, <laughs> what? Like, shut up. I think it's not until you've lived – You know, this like, the stuff that I can do one-handed now is so impressive, and I'm sure you're the same. Yeah. (laughs) You can, like, open, like, finicky packets and get into things when you're holding a baby. But I really noticed, like, when my husband went back to work after three weeks, that was when I really struggled with food because he wasn't Mm. there to be my smoothie maker and snack preparer. Um, So I think what I would definitely encourage is if you have – the time during your maternity leave to do food prep, not just for dinner meals for you and hubby or your partner, but for snacking
0: mm. is really important.
1: So um, I had an amazing friend who did me like smoothie packs. Um, so she oh, did like lots of frozen yeah. fruit and like a scoop of protein powder and um, different seeds. And they were just in the freezer in like the little plastic bags and I could just dump them into a blender with the milk of choice I wanted and, um, you know really quickly and i Mm. liked smoothies because i could kind of have them while i was feeding toby it was really easy for me to do i was getting hydration but also some nutrition um things like bliss balls muffins lactation cookies banana loaves that have sliced already like have stuff in the fridge that you can snack on not just main meals would be a big thing um think about like adding like easy calorie sources to your food so if you've going to make the time to eat, you know, how can you be adding extra nutrition to kind of meet your requirements in one sitting? So I would always do things like add nut butters to porridge, which I wouldn't do before I was pregnant all the time. Um, You know, doing things like if I was having a piece of fruit, like an apple, I'd try and do like peanut butter on top. Um, I feel like I'm saying dried fruit a lot today, but I'm trying to think of like (laughs) those memories of like concentrated energy that were just like easy to grab one handed I think the other thing is, like, you don't need 100 different meal ideas. I would probably rotate between three different lunches.
0: And mm. when you're, like,
1: tired, you know, you've been up all night feeding, you're having this huge hormonal crash, it's just so easy to want to lean on, like, comforting quick carbs. But spending mm. just that extra second or two minutes to make something a little bit higher in protein, I'm, I noticed a huge difference with my energy levels as I got through the day. So, like, you know, eggs were a big one. I'd either do smoothies or, you know, protein oats or eggs on toast for lunch were kind of my three I did in rotation during the week. And then I was probably a little bit more exotic when my husband was home in the weekends.
0: Mm. I think I eat eggs every single day. Like, eggs on sourdough is just because it's so easy to make. I know it's going to fill me up. with Some avocado... Yeah. It's like, I think I eat that every day and I don't think I'm ever going to get sick of it. Like, I just love it. It's so good and filling and takes me two seconds to whip up. Um, So I'm a big, big fan of the, of the eggs as well. And like you say, like it's good protein and it's, well, I mean, at the moment, eggs aren't exactly like the cheapest they've ever been, but it's in comparison to some other things, it's
1: you know easy, hey? yeah. Well, like don't forget about the humble sandwich, like oh. you know, like beautiful grainy bread, hummus, yeah. cheese, you know, some leftover I don't know chicken from the night before, and like your bagged slaw, Yum. which would really be easier to get. But like a really good sandwich is pretty easy to eat one handed when it's chopped up as well. So. Just don't it's so funny you
0: say that because I actually – this week I was just craving a sandwich and <laughs> we went and got some, like, nice bread from, like, the bakery down the road from us and I didn't even put, like, any exotic nice meats or anything. I made, like, an egg sandwich, so, like, mashed egg with mayo and salad Yum. and it was so good. So highly recommend getting back on the sandwich train because I was like, why did why did I stop eating sandwiches? These are so good. So good, hey? yeah and easy, like you say, like literally made and ate in probably less than ten minutes,
1: and you can come back to it and it's not ruined, like there's nothing worse than if you've cooked yourself you know some mm. elaborate hot lunch and you you know baby asks for you and you come back and it's not what it was <laughs> thirty minutes I did that ago, so
0: I'm <laughs> <laughs> especially in that first I think twelve weeks, I remember like with dinners, I would we would try every different night to do it slightly different so that we could – I could have dinner and eat it all. And no matter what time we did it, Louis seemed to wake up literally as I was, like, plating it up and I would just have dinner cold or, like, I'd inhale it, which I didn't really like doing. Like, I wanted to just, like, relax and enjoy my dinner. Um, And I remember one night Luke was like, should we get takeaways? Should we get burgers? And I was like, no, because we're going to get burgers and then my burger is going to be cold while Louis will literally – wake up or need a feed as my burger arrives so i think as well like yeah like you say like thinking about things that don't need to be warm to be good um because yeah. i don't know he had like this internal clock that was like right cool mum's about to eat i'm gonna wake up or start crying now for a feed
1: they always do i don't know if i've <laughs> ever felt madder at my husband than watching him like just calmly eat his dinner every night <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, mine had to be like chopped up by him and brought to me so i could eat it with one hand while i was feeding toby or you'd come back to it three or four times
0: i can yeah so relate to that i would love you to maybe touch on a little bit then about your own experience with becoming a mother so um i know there's there's so much to cover but oh yeah maybe a little bit about your pregnancy and you know fourth trimester with toby
1: Um, God, it's such a flashback, isn't it? I'm like, I don't know where to start. Um, so I guess like maybe just quickly, like our journey to pregnancy definitely was easier than many, many women, but it was harder than I thought it was going to be. So we had a miscarriage before Toby and I think just working in the job that I work in, I catastrophized it really quickly. Like I got Mm. really anxious and worried that being a mom wasn't going to be in my Future, but obviously it is, and I'm very mm. lucky. So, although I was like very, I was pregnant in 2022. It was definitely like mask wearing at work, looking at food diaries, wearing a mask, and you're nauseous is like, oh, 10 out of 10 on the <laughs> nausea trauma scale. Um, yeah, but, but besides that, it was a super easy pregnancy. I um, was induced at 41 plus six, so my little oh, guy. Yeah was not so little and didn't want to exit my body but that's okay mm-hmm. um and newborn life was not a blissful bubble for us I found the first 12 weeks really really hard and I think a part of that was recovery from delivery he was a force mm. delivery um and I had a third degree tear and oh, it was a 50-hour experience and I think I
0: was
1: (laughs) I think I was just exhausted I think he was sore and it made forming a relationship with him in those first weeks quite difficult so if there's any Mm. of your listeners who've had a hard birth I think it definitely can put you on the back foot um you know with bringing Mm. that, that baby home um but yeah I absolutely adore being a mum now after those not that I didn't like it in the first 12 weeks but I found that first journey really hard and I think you know being away from work for the first time I think you're like me and our jobs are quite important to us Mm. and um You know, that whole identity shift was something I just didn't really expect. and But now I feel like we've got, like, a really good balance back. He's got so much personality, and Mm -hmm. I could talk about it for ages, but I'm just aware of time. But I just would love your listeners to know that there are seasons of motherhood that are so hard, and they feel like they're never going to end. And then in a moment, you're in a completely different season, you know, and it's memories. And even sitting here with you now, it was only 11 months ago, but, you know, it doesn't even feel... Real, having to think back, like what was that like? And yeah. sometimes me and my husband will look at photos on our phone from like you know when Toby was first born, and we'll note the time on the phone was like some crazy time in the morning that we were taking a photo yeah. of her Or like, oh my god, we were up at like yeah whatever hour, or you know, I'll see the house in the background and it will be like a complete bomb site, and there's just me cuddling this baby on the couch, and it just goes so fast, doesn't it?
0: It really does. And everyone says that and you're like, oh gosh, that's such like a cliche thing to say, but it so does. Um
1: yeah.
0: so I'd love you to maybe just touch on there, like with sleep then, is how was Toby's sleep? Like, how did you cope with
1: the sleep deprivation? Um, yeah, wild, hey. I often joke with the woman I work with, I'm like, none of you told me what it was going to be like. And they're all like, you just wouldn't believe it if we'd explained it to you. Um, We joke that Toby was born without a sleep button. (laughs) Someone forgot a sleep button. Um, He was definitely a very unsettled little guy when he was probably less than four months old. Um, And looking back, I think a lot of it was the force of delivery, to be honest. Um, Yeah like we took him to an osteopath and um that definitely helped for sure and we sleep trained Toby we did sleep yeah. training um when he was must have been four months old I think and like yeah. I know people have varying opinions on it but it honestly saved my mental health it saved probably my marriage <laughs> it's dramatic. Yeah. um and I think that was the turning point for loving motherhood again it just gave us so much more predictability, routine. He slept better. I slept better. We tried co-sleeping, but I was never one of those mums that could fall asleep with him in the bed with me. i just lay there wired. Yeah. Um, and so although he was getting the sleep, I definitely wasn't. So now it's definitely not perfect, but, oh, my gosh, it's so much better um, than it was. And I just relate to fatigue on a whole different level now, hey? Like I'd often mm. joke with friends i'm like how can you not die from that kind of sleep deprivation oh there's a reason like a torture tactic
0: isn't it (laughs) because it's horrific and especially if you're recovering from a a long labor and a challenging birth like it's not like you can just go home and rest like that's what i find that was the thing i think for me that i was like well i can't everyone's like just rest i'm like well i can't like this tiny little human is relying on me to stay alive and he won't let me so it's like we did the same thing. We sleep trained Louis at about four and a half months because we just, yeah. we needed the predictability and we were both yeah. just exhausted. And he wasn't even probably on the scale of like waking a lot to not at all. He wasn't too bad, but it was also like the day sleep. And I've talked about this heaps, but like the day sleep, which was killing me because he just didn't want to sleep in the day. So the days yeah. were exhausting and yeah. Oh, it's just, It's one of those things as well, and I feel like we never talk about it to people that are expecting a baby because we don't want to be, like, acting like we're scaring them or, like, scare Mm -hmm. tactics. But it is the biggest shock to the system when it happens.
1: 100%.
0: Yeah, there's got to be a bit more of a fine line of, like, preparing versus scaring. I don't know. I feel like we all just get
1: shocked by it. There's so much. I don't know about you, but I found, like, in my – antenatal journey there was so much emphasis on birth like Mm. you know the antenatal courses are all about the birth you know people ask you about how are you feeling about labor and it's it's don't get me wrong it's a really important thing that women should be informed about to make their own decisions and have you know experience that's right for them and their family but i just think so much more support needs to be given like for me the hard work was once baby was here (laughs) not you know birth and pregnancy and understanding you know like how to cope when you're sleep deprived or um being looked after when you're in that kind of sleep deprivation by the people around you I think that's just so so important and not spoken about enough and you're right I think it's probably just hard to do that without scaring mums to be
0: (laughs) yeah that's exactly why I kind of started this podcast because your whole pregnancy and birth as well, like you're looked after by medical professionals. You've got people checking in on you and then you go home with this baby. And apart from like four weeks with your midwife and then the odd plunket visit, like there's no one there to check in on you or like give you support. And, you know, if you don't even, and if you don't have family around, I can only imagine how much harder that would be because I've been very lucky to have a lot of family near us to support us. But You know, a lot of mums and families don't. So I definitely feel like there's just not enough prep for postpartum. It's, yeah, from every aspect as well.
1: Yeah, I completely agree.
0: I'd love to know what is something you wish you knew about babies or becoming a mum that you didn't know that you think would be helpful to know earlier on or for someone that is expecting a baby?
1: I just, like, if I'm, like, imagining myself sitting with my friends who have just become mums, and I I think Mm. the biggest thing I want them to know is, like, you're just capable of so much more than you know. And I remember Mm. feeling in those first 12 weeks, I might cry, (laughs) crying. I remember feeling, you know, that I'd lost myself, and I think a Mm. lot of mums feel this way, that they lose parts of their identity as you kind of move through that first year of baby's life that... You're just gonna find parts of yourself that you never even—I'm gonna cry—that you never you even. You goosebumps! <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> oh, it's so but yeah, it's just yeah. That's what I would want people to know: is you've got yeah. this, and use your village, and yeah, you're just more of a superwoman than you even know. Oh, yeah, she gave me
0: goosebumps. It's so nice. <laughs> I think that's so that's true, nice. true as well, and I definitely in that first few months with the, I, like it was like the initial like romance of Louie being here, Luke was off work and I was just mm-hmm. living my best life. And then when Luke went back to work, I had this shock and, was, you know, it's a lot of time and, you know, and I had support, but like it's a lot of time in the day where you're literally with this baby that doesn't talk um, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, I kind of had these moments of like, wow, is this, is this That's it that? now? That's like, yeah. <laughs> And I really kind of struggled with that, and like like you, it sounds very similar. Similar that now we're at a point where we've got such a good little routine and vibe, and he's so interactive, and it's you know I'm enjoying the the probably the post three months I've enjoyed yeah. so so much more. Um, yeah. And I don't like ugh, he wasn't a grizzly new he wasn't like a difficult newborn, but I just from from me and my personality type, I think I've really enjoyed post three months as well like I just think newborns yeah some people love just the newborn phase but for me I found that I think it was just all the initial shock and like even when I think back on it now like it's so blurry because I was just like in survival mode Mm -hmm. and like I can't like quite remember certain things like I was one of my friends has recently had a baby and I was trying to remember those first four weeks and I was like I can't even remember what when things happened and like, it's all just a bit of a blur. I it's,
1: know. Yeah. I remember being in the first like six weeks and thinking like, why are women not talking about this all the time? Like, how can you ever forget what this was like? Like I'd ask my mum, like, what was I like when I was three weeks yeah. old? And she's like, oh my God, I don't remember. And I'm like, how can you not remember? Like it's so <laughs> hard." And then you sit here, you know, seven and 11 months later and you're like, oh, what yeah. was that like? I actually kept notes on my phone, which I definitely oh. recommend if you're... Someone like me, like I've kept every week I would kind of write like a little paragraph around what Toby was like that week or what how I found motherhood and I've got them for the first 16 weeks and I laugh so hard writing them, you know, like oh. if I have a bad day now, in motherhood, I read some of those notes and I'm like, if you can do that, (laughs) today is nothing. You're so fine.
0: Oh, I think that's a great tip as well. I might even start doing that. I would love to start wrapping up our conversation, but I would love you to share maybe just on the end of all of that, like what has been your hardest and most enjoyable season of motherhood to date and why?
1: Most enjoyable is definitely – I guess, like, as a, as a, a time, I – probably this is a dietitian to me – I loved starting stol- solids with Toby. I found it oh. so much fun. It was, like, the part I was looking forward to and I felt really confident with. And that kid loves food and I love feeding him. So I feel like oh. it's our thing. I love taking him out for sushi, as I mentioned before. I love making food for him. It's definitely my love language. So I've loved solids with my little guy. Um. And the hardest part of motherhood for me was definitely, I mean, we've talked about this already, but that first 12 weeks was yeah. not a season I loved. I definitely probably read too much about that. They call it the newborn bubble. as if it was going to be this really romantic, lovely time, and it just wasn't for me. And I think mm. that's okay. And, you know, we don't have to love every minute of it because there's lots of other seasons that are wonderful.
0: Mm. Oh my God, when you actually mentioned the food and sushi at the start of this chat, I was thinking in my head, I need to ask Sarah about solids because we are on that journey now and I had that, like, I'm a foodie, I love food, I love cooking, again, it's my love language like yours, but... Louis is just kind of like we're so still just fumbling around a little bit, and I'm like, yep, come yeah. on, boy, like get into it. But it, yeah, I know, I know we'll get there, but I can't wait for him to just like all of a sudden get to that point where he's just loving it. So I know we're we're short on time, but was there any like was there a, like was was Toby into it from the get go, or did it take a little bit of perseverance and time?
1: He's definitely always been. Like this kid is not petite. He's definitely like a beautiful bonnie <laughs> boy. I love that not petite. He's not. He's not a small frame lad, um, and he's always been. So we chose to do like a mix of baby lead weaning and purees at the beginning, mm. um, which we probably don't have time to go into. But he was always into giving a go himself, like very independent in nature. And so he loved mm. like grabbing and trying to do it himself versus being spoon fed. He still won't let me spoon feed him. So we don't get to do, like, cute oats for breakfast or anything like that because it's too messy. (laughs) Um, But he's definitely, don't get me wrong, like, if he's teething, if he's sick, like, he'll go through periods of really not being interested in food, Mm. um, which is completely normal. I mean, teething doesn't look particularly pleasant, so I don't think I'd like to eat during that either. Um, But, yeah, it's definitely, like, Louis will totally get there. They all get there in their own timeline. You've just got to keep offering and – be okay with food waste and mess would be my top pieces of advice and we definitely tried to make it that Toby would have versions of whatever we were eating and so now we all sit down and have dinner together which is like ridiculously early at 5 p.m which is not when I'm like <laughs> eat dinner but I'm just so like I still have moments every week when we're sitting down to the same meal and he's chowing down at his lamb shank and I'm just like this is what I dreamed of oh Oh, that's
0: so nice. You're making me – I think maybe because I'm sick, I'm all emotional today. That's just, like, I can't wait for that. I'm really excited for – I think that's just so special to be able to, like, have a meal time together. Like, wow, such a nice way to finish the day as well, I think. And, like, like, you're such a foodie. Like, food is really, you know, your job. So it's, like, cool that you've got this hungry little guy that just wants to eat all the food. Like, perfect.
1: So good. (laughs) can't sleep but great at eating i'll take
0: it yeah absolutely oh well i have just loved this chat sarah i feel like maybe we might have to get you back to give us some tips on on feeding babies because yeah Yeah. we're still struggling over here but i'm i'm hopeful and in the meantime my dogs are just getting fatter and fatter but (laughs) you know someone's got to eat the food i refuse to put it in the bin good Um, But, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your insight and knowledge. I know you're just helping so many women. You've helped me so much. You've helped me create a family. So um, couldn't be more grateful. And I just think the more we talk about this sort of stuff, the better. There's so much more we could have talked about as well. But um, we will maybe pick it up another time and do a part two um, and I will also tag your monthly in the show notes so people can go on and check out a little bit more about what you've been doing
1: thank you so much you and thank you for having me on and letting me in on Louie's journey it's honestly been nothing but a privilege